This is the Momentum Podcast. Today, we're going to do something completely different than what anything I've ever done on the Momentum Podcast. And I have a friend of mine, Ani Manian, who is going to be joining me to have a discussion about what the world is going through right now. And here's how this podcast idea came about. So last week, Ani and I met out at my ranch here in Texas, and we went and drove around and did some hiking and did some shooting. And as we were hanging out together, I turned to Ani and I told him, you know, have you, have you looked at some of the news that's coming up and some of the financial stuff that's coming up, some of the things with real estate? I said, you know, things are going to get very interesting very quickly. This is the third time in my adult life I've been through this, fourth time in my life I've been through this, and you can see all the signs. And Ani said, yeah, you know, I'm aware of some of it and I've, I've been looking at it and reading it. And he said, as an entrepreneur, what would you do or what, what do you do to prepare for something like this now that you've been through it? And I started rattling off a list of items and Ani and I said, Ani, do you think the rest of entrepreneurs know this stuff? Because sometimes I have this level of, of like not knowing what I know. And Ani said, I would suggest to you that this is probably another one of those areas of unconscious competence that you have that most of the world doesn't. And so I said, hey, why don't, why don't we do a podcast on this? Why don't you interview me? And actually, I didn't say that. It was Ani's idea. Ani had the idea of, hey, why don't, why don't we do a podcast and I'll interview you? Because for me... There's something that unlocks when I'm talking to a friend of mine, when I'm talking to somebody who I trust, when I'm talking to someone I have a relationship with. And so as a means of introduction, Ani is a close friend of mine. If you want to go listen to the podcast I did with him, you can, and I'll make sure that we drop a link for it or we drop a, the reference to it later. But Ani is a, a coach to entrepreneurs. He is an incredibly intuitive and gifted entrepreneur himself. Um, he's been able to help me understand things about myself that really I, I have never understood through any other context. Context. And he's one of my closest friends on the planet and somebody who I will use any excuse to be able to hang out with. And so um, this is just one of the many excuses that we find to hang out with each other. So Ani, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. And thanks so much for the idea, man. I think this is going to be awesome. Yeah, I think you're going to drop so much gold that entrepreneurs everywhere who are listening are going to be just scrambling to pick it all up. I'm Alex Sharfin, and this is the Momentum Podcast, made for empire builders, game changers, trailblazers, shot takers, record breakers, world makers, and creators of all kinds. Those among us who can't turn it off and don't know why anyone would want to. We challenge complacency, destroy apathy, and we are obsessed with creating momentum so we can roll over bureaucracy and make our greatest contribution. Sure, we pay attention to their rules, but only so that we can bend them, break them, then rewrite them around our own own will. We don't accept our destiny. We define it. We don't understand defeat because you only lose if you stop. And we don't know how. While the rest of the world strives for average and clings desperately to the status quo, we are the minority, the few who are willing to hallucinate there could be a better future. And instead of just daydreaming of what could be, we endure the vulnerability and exposure it takes to make it real. We are the evolutionary hunters, clearly the most important people in the world because entrepreneurs are the only source of consistent, positive human evolution, and we always will be. It's such, it's such a pleasure to be here. And, you know, one of the things that really sparked my excitement for this conversation is that this is a conversation that really needs to be had. And the stuff unfolding pretty intensely and pretty rapidly in the world. So let's just start there. What are you seeing? If you 
want to paint a picture, both macro and microeconomically, real estate, stocks, what are you seeing? What's happening in the world that people need to just get a bird's eye view on? Oh man. Well, if we, if we take it up to, to the highest level, <clears throat> you know, everything is cyclical. The world is cyclical and economics are cyclical. And if you do any research at all on the economy or on the stock market or on uh, real estate or finances, there's always these cycles where things go up, where we call it a bull market. You know, I used to get very confused before between bull and bear market. So anybody who's listening, if you're confused between bull and bear, I'm with you because I used to think bull will take your head off. Bear will take your head off. What's the difference? Well, the way that I, I finally started to understand it was bull is when we have a charging market, the market's charging forward. Bear is when we have a hibernating market, people are pulling back and pulling out. And if you look at what's happened in the economy, if we go back to 2007, we entered a massive bear market. Um, 2008, we had the real estate crash, the stock market crash. We pulled tons of trillions of dollars were pulled out of the, econ the economy worldwide. Um, you know, countries were going bankrupt. It was unprecedented just how challenging things got with the international banking collapse. And what happened was um, economies started getting propped up by their government. So the United States, the way that we created kind of an artificial economy was by taking interest rates from traditional levels of like seven to nine or ten percent down into the threes, sometimes into the twos because there was so much subsidy. And so that created a massive bull market where housing prices have exploded and the stock market has more value than it ever has. And, you know, the, the things have just gone through the roof. Crypto went, went crazy and has gone up in value. And when you look at all of those conditions, you know, it, it, a lot of people have made a ton of money and a lot of wealth has been created. And then the coronavirus hit in 2020. And, you know, I was one of the first people to say like, wow, this is going to cause major issues. But what I wasn't expecting is that we would print trillions of dollars in money. And so we just, just to put that into context, you know, 80% of the money that's currently in circulating supply was printed in the past two years. I thought it was three quarters, but dude, it's still 75% or 80%. It's ridiculous. Whatever that number is, it's crazy because even in the 2007, 2008 crisis that you're talking about, they printed about what, 800 billion to bail the banks out? That yes. Well, to be able to bail the banks out and to be able to subsidize insurance rates. But when you look at what's happened in the past couple of years, the coronavirus hit and we printed so much money. And when we say we printed money, what we really need to say is we printed so much wealth. And there was this massive wealth transfer that's happened in the past couple of years. And so now what are we seeing just in, in these last few months of 2022? So one, the Federal Reserve has had to raise interest rates. Like we all knew it was coming. We didn't know how long they could keep them artificially low, but they've had to raise them. And so we see interest rates going up in the real estate market. Then we see this dynamic with so much money being printed that is causing inflation. The cost of everything has gone up. So when you look at this macroeconomically, you know, the cost of, of food, the cost of fertilizer, I mean, baby formula, you can't even get it right now. The cost of production has gone up. And then when we look at, you know, the, the previous administration we have, no judgment, no politics here, just like, let's look at it black and white, did not create a very safe environment between the United States and China, or at least did not feel China, make feel China feel safe or, or have, have the same um, type of relationship with the United States that they have in the past. COVID complicated that 
far more than than it was originally with you know the disease originating in china and all the finger pointing that happened and the arguments that have happened and then the conflict around taiwan and maybe china taking it back or leaving it alone and what's going to happen there and so we now have massive supply chain issues and so when you couple the real estate market having a slowdown which is coming I, i know a lot of people don't think it will come i've actually had some people tell me that i'm wrong I have a very high level of confidence that when you raise interest rates, and I can explain why, but when you raise interest rates, you cripple the real estate market. And I can explain why it's so crippling. But when you look at interest rates and inflation and then supply chain issues and all the other things that are coming, this is going to be a massive recessionary period. And, you know, recession is, is, defined as having two quarters of negative growth. Well, we just had our second quarter of negative growth. So we know we are officially in a recession. I always used to laugh at that in the 2007, 2008 time period. Cause I'm like, isn't it great that they let you know you were in a recession six months ago? Like, I'd like to get that a little bit sooner, you know, but so, so what you're saying is this is fact. This is not opinion. Just, I just want to underscore this. No, this is not conjecture. We are this in is- a recessionary period. And just to really underscore this, can you share a little bit about your experience, your personal experience having navigated these? Because I know for a fact that you, you're not just talking, you know, intellectually or conceptually, this is lived experience combined with deep expertise in real estate in so many spaces that we're talking about here. So can you just recap just so we can underscore exactly the level of credibility and expertise that's being expressed in this conversation. Yeah, I appreciate that, Ani. So when I say I've been through this four times, you know, as a child, there was the oil crisis and that created a massive inflationary and and, um, crisis period. It was affected my family, but I was really small. So energetically, I remember those times. I remember how stressful it was, but I had no idea about the details. Now, when it comes to the dot-com crisis, I actually owned a consultancy in the consumer and computer electronics industry. And we did business with a lot of the famous uh, bankruptcies that happened in the dot-com era. And so I was was intimately involved in that. we're doing business with outpost.com and shopping.com and pets.com and all these dot-coms that were just driving for eyeballs, creating this false value, false economy, billions, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in wealth. I don't remember if it quite re- reached a trillion. I don't think it did, but then it just all got sucked out of the market at once. And so I was at ground zero of that, like working with those companies, then afterwards working with distributors to figure out what to do and, and helping them understand their losses and how are we going to come back and how are we going to reset up the market? And so that was, that was the first one that I was really not on the sidelines, but in. And then in 2007, Katie and I, um, when, when I sold that consumer electronics consultancy, we went into real estate. And so in the early 2000s, Katie and I were buying and selling homes. We were um, rehabbing homes. We were doing some minor development of stuff. And we created three different multi-million dollar company, one which was a tens of millions, an eight-figure business. And um, that was where all of our income and revenue came from. So in 2007, at the very beginning of the real estate crash, we were actually at ground zero. We were in Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties. We owned dozens of properties. We had tens of millions of dollars in equity. We had millions of dollars in the bank and it just all imploded on itself. And we ended up bankrupt in 2000. We are bankrupt. Bankruptcy started in seven and then went into 2008. 
And in 2000, at the beginning of 2000, late 2007, early 2008, we introduced a product called the Certified Distressed Property Expert designation. And it was, I had done a ton of research on the real estate market and what was going on. And I could see that it was a seven to 10 year crisis. And I started sharing that publicly. And we had this product that would show real estate agents how to help homeowners get out of foreclosure and maybe do a mortgage modification or a short sale, which at the time, short sales weren't even, nobody even understood what they were, but I had been a mortgage broker. So I did have a cursory understanding. Plus a lot of the real estate that Katie and I did, we worked with distressed homeowners. And so we created this product called the CDP. We launched it in bankruptcy. <laughs> it was the way that we got out of bankruptcy. So we, you know, people are like, oh, you were in the right place at the right time. I'm like, man, if you zoomed in on, on my life, you would not think it was right place, right time. <laughs> You're like, how do we buy groceries? And then I got to launch this product. But over the course of from 2008 to when we, when about 2013, we sold just under 50,000 units of that product. We certified 47,000 real estate agents in change. It was the largest real estate designation in the history of the market, including the ones that are put out by the National Association of Realtors. And we had this slogan that we started the, the course with. I remember the day that it hit me. It was solving the foreclosure crisis, one homeowner at a time. And it was train an agent, have them help the homeowner. And that's like ground level. This is how we're going to solve this thing. And so from 2008 to 2013, I was on Fox News and CNBC more than anybody else advocating for real estate agents and for the real estate market. Um, I was on TV so much, we had to install a studio in our offices because I had to go downtown so often that it got to the point where I couldn't anymore. And so we, I had a studio in my office. I walked across the hall to broadcast to New York and in 2013, Lori Maggiano, who was a director at the U.S. Treasury for foreclosures and distressed properties, on a broadcast in our office, said that the CDP designation and the agents we had trained had pulled forward the recovery of the foreclosure crisis by five to seven years. And so... I, you know, to say that, that I was involved is an understatement. I was actually, I actually sat two chairs away or one chair. I was one chair, one person in between me and director Lockhart who ran the U S treasury and who was like on television with Obama. And we, my, my company was writing white papers. I remember this guy named Adam Pedowitz and John Leslie, the, these two writers we had, we would write white papers and they would often be cut and pasted into position papers from the Obama administration. And so I was inside that world like crazy. I remember, Ani, one time, one of the jokes that I always tell people is, you know, I was a keynote speaker at a financial conference. And don't think that like there's a reason why this type of, of market is such a massive opportunity because I don't have a degree. I, I quit college because I was making too much money as an entrepreneur. And I was the keynote speaker at a financial conference where the guy who opened was uh, one of the chief financial officers for Fannie Mae. He had two degrees. The second guy was a chief financial officer for Freddie Mac, three degrees. And they both got introduced with their degrees. And it was conspicuous because when they introduced me, no degrees. And so the joke that I made was when, when I got up in front of the room was like, can you believe these guys? You know, first guy, two degrees, second guy, three degrees. Between the three of us, we have five. You should be <laughs> impressed. And they all started laughing. But, you know, I think that the, one of the reasons I bring that up is I think, you know, these markets create massive opportunity for the person who's not in the lead. They create massive opportunity for the person with a new solution, with a new idea. And I know we want to talk a little bit more about what's going on in the market first, but I just, I want to, I want to plant that seed that, you know, I, I certainly am never excited when we're in a recessionary or bear market, but man, do I see opportunity like crazy. 
Yeah, so let's go there because I think based on what you just shared, you may kind of have a clue what you're talking about. I don't know. <laughs> sort of, sort of. So the natural response that any entrepreneur has when they hear the words recession, bear market, inflation, inflation. right? Currency devaluation, supply chain issues is fear. And it's normal because, you know, I have this principle that the thing that we work the hardest to create, we also generate the highest amount of fear of losing. So every entrepreneur who is responsible for their families, their teams, their customers, uh, the impact that they're having, people are scared. People are wondering how this is going to affect me. People are wondering how this is going to affect my business, my market share, uh, my marketing, my all my top line metrics. And typically, and I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs in the past couple of weeks, people are scared. And they're scared because they're afraid that they're going to lose something. And this is a very normal, natural human response. But this, as you pointed out a couple of times, is also a time of massive, massive, massive opportunity because the, 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 the deck is going to get shaken out. The weekends are going to fall. People who are building companies that are, you know, not really innovating, that are not really doing anything particularly um, enriching or that adds a lot of value, those companies are going to die. There's, there's a natural selection process that's about to take place. And the other thing that we talked about when we were out of the range was that so many big success stories actually started during a time like this, during a recession. I think Airbnb was one of them. There were a couple of other HP, a couple of examples that you shared. Yeah. So talk about that. Talk about how there is another way to experience what's about to come, what's already here to be more precise. And there's another way to navigate this. And we can take these lenses off and put a different set of lenses on that would actually allow us to capitalize on what's unfolding. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, when I went bankrupt in 2007, Ani, it was one of the most life, it was probably the most life-changing business or finance, finance experience I've ever had. Not the most life-changing in general. That was getting married to Katie and having my two daughters by far, like the, the shift in perspective, being married to Katie, the shift in perspective of being a father. But right behind that, it was going bankrupt. And, you know, ever since I was a kid, my dad was an entrepreneur, not a super successful one, but a consistent one. And ever since I was a kid, I just wanted to be a successful business owner. I would, I would literally, while other kids were out playing, I was in my room, like writing up time cards and business plans. I didn't even know what I was doing, like making stuff up. You know, that's, that was like my idea of playing. Some kids played Dungeons and Dragons. I made up companies and, and I had been successful in business up until that point. And going bankrupt was one of the most jarring experiences of having to write a check for tens of thousands of dollars to prove I was an abject failure in public. And I remember like thinking, how do I get past this? How do I get over this? And so I, I asked the question, like, I wonder how many people have been through this and recovered. And so I started doing some research on like bankrupt opportunity or bankrupt entrepreneurs that had recovered. And you know, what I found over and over again, 
these entrepreneurs that had like pretty challenging careers, then got had bankruptcies and then exploded like PT Barnum exploded after his bankruptcy. And, and he's not one I'll, I'll remember more later, but there's so many that have gone through this like super low point and then come battling back. A lot of the, the most famous public speakers, the people who are influencers, who were influencers of my time, Jack Canfield, Mark Victor Hansen, all bankrupt and then blew up afterwards. And so I'm like, okay, there's, there's light here. There's hope in, in this tunnel. Right. And then I started doing research on, okay, what, what about recessionary periods? Do businesses even get born or grow or succeed in recessionary periods? And here's what I found. This is so counterintuitive. More businesses, more multi-million dollar, multi, or sorry, multi-billion dollar multinational businesses have been born during recessions than during bull markets, than during the really good markets. And I'm like, I wonder why that happens. Well, here's what I deduce, because when you look at these types of companies like Revlon, FedEx, um, Airbnb, like you said, Hewlett Packard, well, all of these companies had a different solution. They all had a different way of looking at things like FedEx was don't put it in the mail. You'll get it there overnight. And, you know, Hewlett Packard was a complete change in what was available in for printing at home. And, and people were going to now have this new capacity of the printing press in their office or in their home. And when you look at an Airbnb, like you instead of going to a hotel, you're going to rent somebody's house. Like how weird is that? Right? Like sometimes at the beginning of Airbnb, a lot of people lived in their house while you rented it. And it was such counterintuitive. Or it was, it's, it's so counterintuitive to think that in a recessionary market or a bear market or a challenging market, more companies are born than succeed. And, and here's why I think that is, or here's more, more multi-billion dollar multinational companies, because in a bull, in a bear market, or sorry, in a bull market, when things are going well, people don't say, how do I change this? When things are going well, people aren't looking and saying like, what new innovation is there here? How do I make this different? When things are going well, people are just focused on things going well. And when you hit a recessionary market, when you hit a bear market, people start asking, what is the new solution? And so for everybody who's out there listening, if you're an entrepreneur with a smaller business, uh, you know, you, you have a, a small team, maybe you're under a million dollars, maybe you're around a million dollars. Now is your time to go take massive market share because you're the underdog. If you're in that, that category that I just named, you know, if you're under a few million dollars, you're an underdog. There's somebody who's much bigger than you doing the same thing you're doing. And if you're competing in a world like I was in the, the world of real estate, it was us against the National Association of Realtors. Like they've been around forever. They literally own the real estate market. They're, they, well, they don't own it, but they, they administrate the real estate market in so many different ways and especially realtors. And the reason I was able to gain attention and have a very successful business and re, you know get to number 21 on the Inc. 500 list. We were bankrupt in 2008. We were number 21 fastest growing company in the United States in 2011. So in the minimum time available for the Inc. 500 list, we hit number 21. And the reason is because people were looking for a new solution. If it was a, a, a good market, people would have looked at me and been like, who is this guy? But because it was a, a market where there was a lot of uncertainty, there was a lot of questions, there was a lot of, of like, how do we do this? People were actually looking for a new solution. So first principle of recession bear markets is that people want a new solution. It's when people start asking, what else is there? And so for anyone listening who is in this, this, this position, you have a massive opportunity right now. When everybody else gets scared, when the leader in the market gets scared, when there's trepidation, when there's anxiety, if you do the right things, you can absolutely take massive market share in a market like we are entering into right now. Does that make so, sense, honey? It makes perfect sense. And I think that's a beautiful 
first first principle in a time of recession. I think a second one is when people are scared, when the average consumer is looking at the rising gas prices and the cost of food and all this stuff, when people are scared, when people are feeling uncertain, I think the second principle is that entrepreneurs need to find a way to sell certainty. Because people want certainty more than anything else. And I think that's one of the things that you demonstrated really well in the 2007, 2008 period, because you actually gave people certainty by offering a way that these brokers could help people come out of the foreclosure crisis. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. How, how would an entrepreneur go about creating certainty, offering certainty as one of the deepest points of value that they offer their clients, their customers, their market? Well, if you're an entrepreneur who is selling a solution, you actually understand if you get consistent results for your customer, if you are a product that actually works, then this is your time because in a in a good market, in a growing market, in a market like we've been experiencing, any, anybody can be successful. And I, I don't mean that as an insult. And I do, it, it, is, it is like an exaggeration, right? Because there's still people who fail. But the reality is when the market is working with you, you look like a genius a lot of the time. Like the people who have been investing in real estate in the past few years, I see people put stuff out of like, oh, I just made this much on a property and this much on a property. And I'm like, yeah, the market did it for you. If you own a property for a year, you're going to make money on that property. Like you can't, you can't lose right now. Well, now we're entering into a market where you have to really know what you're doing in order to succeed. And for the, for the entrepreneurs who understand what they're doing and can get that consistent solution. This is a massive time because here's what I assure you will happen. This market is going to take every category, put it in a box, shake it up and sift out the people who aren't doing the right things. And so as an entrepreneur, here's how I believe you sell certainty. You know, you can get a result. You know, you have a good product. You know, the product that gives the effect that you promise. So you make a promise, you deliver the promise. Like in a market like this, that's what people want. They want you to make a promise and deliver it. Don't worry about over delivering it. Don't worry about giving them way more than they thought. Like we didn't do any of that with the CDP. We just made a promise and gave them the promise. We told realtors they would know how to navigate the foreclosure market and do a short sale. We proved that we didn't have to give them bonuses. We didn't have to give them extra stuff. We didn't have to over deliver any of those things. And, and they were thrilled. We had, like, we, like I said, we had over 47,000 designees. And here's how you do it. You create certainty for yourself. And so, you know, Ani, we had talked about like some of the habits entrepreneurs should have. Starting right now is a time to change habits. So Katie and I, I, I shared with Ani when we were at the ranch, Katie and I have been sitting down for the last few months we have accumulated all the expenses that we have. We, we have them in a spreadsheet. So we know what our minimum commitment is each month. I know exactly what number we have to meet to hit our minimums. We're in the process now of looking at all the, the um, discretionary spending that we have. Like that discretionary is like the things you decide to spend. So we're looking at all of those numbers. And we're saying, even though we are multimillionaires, even though we have independent wealth, even though potentially we could probably retire on our wealth if we wanted to, we still go through these habits because here's how I want to go through this market. I want to go through this market with the certainty that I have financial stability. I want to go through this market with the certainty that I understand where my money is going and what I need. I want to go through this market understanding what my minimums are and what my expenses are. And every entrepreneur can do this. 
you know, Katie and I look at our net worth on a monthly basis and we say, where have things gone? What's moved? You know, what, what is going the right way? What's going in the wrong way? And recently it's been challenging. Like we, we have stock holdings that are not doing great or not doing as well as they were. We have crypto holdings that are not doing as well as they were. We're still way ahead of any basis that we have any initial investment, but I still want to understand those things. And if you want to express certainty in the marketplace, I believe it comes with personal certainty first. So understand what your net worth is and track it. Understand what your spending is and track it. This is not the time to go out and buy vanity, you know, cars and, and stuff. This is a time to actually stack cash like crazy because as this recession continues and as it starts to turn and we start to come back to a bull market like we will, we start to come back to a healthy market like we will. I think this one's got a long way to go down first, but that's where millions are made. That's where Katie and I made a fortune in real estate and, and a fortune in crypto because we were buying assets when nobody else could. And, you know, this is a time to stack every dollar you have. And I know, I know before anybody says it, before I get messages written into me, before people make posts on social media about me saying to stack cash in a recessionary market where there's you know 8% inflation. And so you're losing the money. I get it. But go look at what smart investors do in these types of markets. They sit on cash. They sit on cash because they know even though if they're even if they're losing 8% a year, when the time finally comes, they're going to gain back so much more of that by buying the world at a massive yard sale. You just, you need to have resources to invest when everything's on sale. Even if that means you're only spending, you know, conservative mid seven figures a month on supplements. <laughs> we all have to make sacrifices. <laughs> we have to give everybody context that you and I really enjoy biohacking and, and might be a little addicted to trying the newest and greatest thing. It's pretty much the only reason why, you know, we have businesses because we need to feed, we need to feed a free raging <laughs> supplement habit, but this is, this is such a huge point because when I think um, Buffett is quoted to have said that this is, you know, it's so trite at this point, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. Now, if you want to take that axiom and you want to actually implement it, what Alex just said is so, so, so key. Stacking cash and having liquid assets available to buy assets at a fire sale is the easiest way to create wealth. And what's about to happen is going to make the 2008 crisis look like a joke. And what that really means, so you can see that in two ways. You can see that as something to be afraid about, something to lose your over, uh, something to get really anxious and, you know, get your sleep out of whack, or you can see it as the greatest wealth building opportunity of your lifetime. Yep. If you play your cards, right. If you have enough liquid assets available that you can deploy, you're not going to time the market, but roughly at the bottom ish, you're going to see a massive, massive, massive return. And the only way to tr build true wealth is, is by building assets. And so you can eat, you, um, if you're an entrepreneur, you're listening to this, you have an asset, which is your business. You may have multiple businesses and the other kind of leverage. So we were talking about Naval Ravikant, right? Um, a little, a little time ago, there's four kinds of leverage. So there's labor leverage. So labor leverage is if you have a business and you employ people and you arbitrage their time um, and their skills in the market, 
you know, with what you pay them. So you, you acquire labor and then you leverage that. The second kind of leverage is capital leverage. So you have excess money, you have profit left over in your business. Hopefully you're paying yourself. Hopefully you're pulling that into some sort of an investment account and you're investing that money. Maybe you buy crypto. This is, it's going to be a great time to buy crypto because everything's going to be on sale and you make your money work for you. You make your money, make more money. So that's basically using capital as leverage. No the third kind of leverage is code leverage. So this is the principle that all tech companies, all the startups are built off of. So you build a code base. So an app of some sort, a technology product. Or maybe and, just a learning product. Like, or a learning product. So, so the CDP was actually a code-based product, even though it was never a software product itself. We right. had a software as a service behind it that did about 6 million a year at its height. But but like, I want everyone to know, because sometimes when entrepreneurs hear code-based leverage, it's like, oh, I'm not a programmer. I, I'm not going to be in technology. Well, every information product is what Ani's talking about. So that's the fourth one, which is media. Right. If you can produce media and that's you can think, you know, content on YouTube or Instagram. But that's also what Alex is talking about in terms of information products, a training program, educational product. So those are the four ways to generate wealth. Right. And the last two are exponential. So this is what I really focus on, which is using technology to create leverage, using media to create leverage, because both those Ways of creating leverage offer zero marginal cost for every incremental replica or sale, which means it costs you the same amount of money, maybe marginally like very, very little to serve another customer. And if you're using media, I mean, you're not paying for that. YouTube is paying for that. So your ability to drive attention during a time when people are looking for certainty, when people are nervous, they're afraid, and they're looking for someone to step in as a leader when other people are basically going into hiding, offers another massive advantage. So let's talk about that. This is a period in which leaders are born mm. and the leaders who are not truly meant to be leaders, they fade. Yeah. Right. So tell me about what you've seen about that and what sort of mindset shifts can someone really embody in order to show up, like truly show up, stand up and lead the market. Yeah. You know, I think if you're an entrepreneur who has any type of product or company, I hope you're obsessed with it. I hope you're obsessed with the product. I hope you're obsessed with the people you serve. I hope you're, you're obsessed with the solution that it creates. Here's why. In a market like today, by going out and doing the research, by talking to your avatar, you know, when I created the certified district, the CDP designation, I was not a real estate agent. My wife was, but I talked to over 120 real estate agents to put it together. I did interviews with 120 agents to do the research, to understand what was going on. You know, whenever somebody says you can't crowdsource opinions, I crowdsource a product that did $70 million. So you can crowdsource a lot. And by, you know, in, in this type of a market, if you're obsessed enough to go out and do the research, to talk to the market, to understand what they need, to know more about that market than anyone else, you can take over a market in this this time period. You can be the product category leader in this time period. When you look at the CDP designation, and I say we trained 47,000 agents, to give you perspective, we had somewhere around 100 competitors. 
If you added up all of our competitors together, they didn't reach 47,000 sales. We knew them. We understood who they were. We knew how they were selling. They didn't have the same exposure that we did. How did we have that massive offset? We did more research on the market than anybody else did. We had a continuous um continuous like discipline around research, around understanding, around understanding our customer, around talking to the customer, feedback loops within our business to understand who they are. You know, I have another podcast, if you want to go listen to it called Own Your Avatar that discusses doing avatar interviews. I have this theory that I've yet to been proven wrong, but it's one of those that's kind of hard to prove negative. But I, I theorize that if you do 100 avatar interviews with the person you serve, and you do a hundred different interviews with different people and you ask them questions and you understand them and you start hearing the same things over and over again, that you'll know more about that avatar and the solution they need than anyone on the planet. And there's all types of arguments against that. Oh, you can do surveys. You can do this. You can do that. There's nothing like talking to the people up close and personal. And so if you're an entrepreneur, if you have this level of obsession, go learn your customer better than anybody else does right now. And I'm not saying to change your product around it if you don't need to, like you might have a perfect solution, but if you go understand your customer better than anybody else, you can speak to them in a way that they know you know them and they understand that you are the solution and you will be seen as the market leader. You know, it's interesting, Ani, just a couple of weeks ago, I, I taught a course on how to take your product and, and turn it into a movement. And, you know, every movement throughout history has been started because people had questions because people, like you said, they wanted certainty. And when you look at, you know, what does it really take to, to create your business and turn it into a movement? It takes a depth of understanding of the person you serve so deep that when you describe their problems, they're feeling like they've heard it for the first time from somebody else ever. You know, I, I've, I've been obsessed with entrepreneurs for most of my career. So when I tell an entrepreneur, you know, I know the, the challenge, how bad it feels to be out of momentum. Like you don't feel like you're moving forward. Like we need momentum. Like the rest of the world needs oxygen. Entrepreneurs go, holy cow, like you get me. And it's because I've been obsessed and I've done research and I've interviewed thousands of entrepreneurs in my career. And so if you're out there as an entrepreneur, now is the time to know your market better than anybody else. And that knowledge will give you the insight to take a market like this and go from startup to market leader if that's something you're willing to do.